Hello, and welcome to the Short Gun Sportsman, a podcast about handgun hunting brought to you by Handgun Hunters International. My name is Ryan Hoover, and I'm your host. I believe handgun hunting is the most rewarding way to hunt, and it's something I want to share with as many people as I can. If you are at all interested in getting your own game meat, I want to challenge you to a way of hunting that is good for both your spirit and your body, so you can become the confident, self-reliant person you were meant to be. Hello, everybody. For today's episode, I had a conversation with Furman Garza. For those of you who don't know, Furman makes some really incredible front sights for revolvers, and he has kind of taken the revolver world by storm with these sights. Everybody's using them. They're incredibly high quality, and um, he is also a high quality guy. He is not only the front sight maker, but he is a trained gunsmith, and he has a wealth of knowledge about revolvers, accurizing revolvers, getting them to shoot. He's just a true six gunner. On top of that, he's such a personable guy. He always hands out his phone number. He wants you to talk to him. He wants to help you through your accuracy issues with your revolver. He was a, a shooting instructor for the police department. He's just done a lot of things and he has a really, really wide base of knowledge. So I was really informed and I had a great conversation with him. Before we get into that, I want to let you guys know that if you can, please give this podcast a five-star rating and a good review. It helps with the algorithm and it gets more people to know about us and it'll make this podcast successful. So I really appreciate all of you who are listening and again, ask you if you wouldn't mind going to do that. One thing you'll hear throughout this interview is that Furman's connection on the phone wasn't the best. There are a few times where he pops in and out, but the information that he's sharing is definitely worth it. So please bear with the sound as you listen. I felt that it was just worth it to leave most of it as it was so that you could hear Furman as he truly is. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Furman Garza. Furman Garza, thank you so much for being on the podcast with me today. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. I've been looking forward to this one for sure. So I want to start with something that I typically ask people, which what, which is kind of, what was your first handgun hunting experience? What kind of drew you to that and what was it like? You know, my handgun, my six gun experience is starts all the way back from being a toddler in diapers wearing cap pistols. You know, it's mm-hmm. just that. And as, as far as the hunting I can remember my father and my big brothers with their pistols. My dad had a woodsman and my older brother had a, a single six. And they're head shot shooting cottontail rabbits. And it's kind of a duel. You know what I mean? I wasn't big enough at the time, but that's where it started. Gotcha. Oh, that's cool to have grown up watching that. Yeah. They they taught me quite a few things. What country was this in? I mean, what, um, what part well, of the country? We're on the Gulf Coast of South Texas. Okay, so, great. Five miles of here, there's some pretty good fishing, and go the other direction, there's some pretty good hunting. That's great. What's the cottontail population like these days? It depends. It kind of goes up and down. Uh, the jackrabbits as well. Uh, they seem to do better in the greener years, uh, but sometimes we have a lot of coyotes and not that many rabbits, so it's just sort of funny. I only ask because... Cyclic, I guess, is what I, what I think. Cyclic. Yeah, yeah. I only ask because I feel like, you know, I hunt in the hill country of Texas a lot. And I feel like when I was younger, we I used to see a lot more cottontails than I do these days. But I don't know. So, again, go ahead. there's other predators, the flying predators, there's the snakes, there's the hogs, there's the bobcats. Yeah. Everything eats rabbits. That's right. That's true. 
Yeah, that's true. So why you, you grew up watching your dad with a semi-auto and your brother with a revolver. What kind of drew you to the revolver? The revolvers were all the power is, you know, uh, the auto loaders, you know, they're great tools and they're, they're very efficient for what they're designed to do. Uh, but you know, when you're hunting a revolver compared to a rifle is, is uh, not it's not nearly as powerful in a lot of cases, and so you want to bring the the power to the to the equation where you can. Well, I mean, also you talked about being a toddler with cat pistols and all that stuff. I guess I think there's something about you know people who grew up just where there's something about wearing a revolver on your hip rather than a semi-auto. Um, again, my oldest brothers were real cowboys. You know, Bill Finch trained horses, cowboys, and you yeah. know they would. We were playing in the at the ranch, and they would ride by me and scoop me up into the back of their saddle, you know, like you see on TV, and just all that kind of fun stuff. And it's just been something that just never gone away. So the thing that I think you're probably most known for, although your abilities go a lot deeper than this, are your sights. I saw them break out a few years ago, and everybody's using them. Why? Why did you? Why did you choose to start working on sights? And what was it about that? What was currently available that you thought you could improve on? My fundamental thinking is that most six-gunners are far better shots than they know. And there's either some sort of revolver deficiency, ammunition issue, or they can't see their sights as well as they should. And I didn't discover that for some years. You know, I was a, a, fire, a SWAT firearms trainer for 17 years, and I trained the entire uh, police department for 11, including some of the smaller agencies that were satellites. But I always thought the student either wasn't looking at the sights right or he wasn't pulling the trigger right. When I turned 50, I realized, oh, he can't see the sights. Mm. So that was really rather illuminating uh, for me. And so we started cutting these sites in about 2010, and we were just pretty much cutting them from scratch, and we were building them for the Ruger, uh, uh, for the BFR, mm -hmm. because the front sight that they had on there was aluminum. I can't remember. But anyway, it just sort of has gone into a life of its own. That's pretty cool. So what are some of the elements that go into making a site that you can see better? Because I know you don't do any night sights or fiber optic, correct? Not at this time. Yeah. So your very best target competitors, the PPC guys, the Bianchi Cup guys, you know, those guys are pretty much using black on black sites mm -hmm. and they have to be very visible and sharp. And if you look at say your typical uh, Ruger revolver, you know, the, the front side is at a, at, a, at a pretty good ramp and it tends to glare. And so what happens is when you put one of my sights on your gun, you realize that you've been driving against high beam traffic all this time because there's just been so much glare that, you know, it, what I do with the angles and the serrations is pretty much does away with it. Ah, I understand. And keeping them square helps, I imagine. Yeah, there's nothing magic about my sights, sir. They're, they're simply just good, clean American steel, and they're, and they're cut straight, and they're serrated deeply, and they're blued darkly. And so you end up with a, a sight that's it's kind of like that kid on Halloween who's costume is so black it's, it's making a hole in the night yeah well i i think that good quality american-made steel products that are precise are kind of magic these days because we definitely don't see enough of them well there's another malady that has come to light and it's where where the shooter starts seeing errant wide right or wide left shots mm -hmm. and so what that's telling me is that that student or that client cannot anymore equally reconciled the, the amount of light on either side of the front sight in the rear notch. Mm. So the cure then becomes to cut him a thinner front sight. 
So I offer 125, which is standard, and sometimes I do them wider, depending on the special needs. But 115, 110, 185, all the way down to 070, depending on the on the client's needs and wants. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the thinner blade is something I think that has been a, a, a the biggest change for people that I provide. And for speaking for myself, the way I manage it is. I'm 62 and I'm in trifocals and I have cataracts. So because of all that, I'm very highly motivated to get you in a site you can see. <laughs> on my seven and a half inch guns, I, sh- I run a 115 wide blade. On my five and a half and six and a half, so I shoot a 110. And on my short barrel Smiths and you know short Rugers, the four and five eighths guns, I shoot a 100. And, and, and just by doing it that way, I'm able to get a good sight picture no matter what barrel length's on the gun. That's that makes sense. That's that's really well thought out. So tell me just my, you can tell me if you disagree with this, my kind of philosophy about a lot of shooting is if it's safe, do what works for you. But do you have some general advice of, to shooters, either experienced or, or newer, about what their sight picture should kind of look like uh, so that they make sure they're doing it right before they decide whether or not they need to replace something? Yeah. Okay. So even a master pistol shot, Okay, you'll find that that guy practices the fundamentals all the time. Speaking for myself, I have a, uh, a rule that I'm pretty much sticking empty case in the chamber of every cylinder. So I'm, I don't know when I'm going to get a click instead of a bang. Mm. And so, and so when I'm when I'm actually shooting the gun, when the gun does not make ignition, my sight should be dead still, and my front sight should be in such focus that I can clearly see it. You know, mm. through that. Having said that, then the human eye is incredibly fast. It's so fast that if you remember when you were a kid and you saw that Coca-Cola flash in the middle of the Tarzan movie on the, at the driving theater, that projector was running at 20 frames per second. And you clearly saw that hmm. Coca-Cola. Flash. So that tells you that you can at least pick up 20 separate images in one second. Ronnie says it's even more than that, but we know that for sure. Hmm. And so you should be able to see your front sight during ignition, when the front start and trying to lift out of the notch. Now, the more violent the gun recoils, the harder that is to do, mm-hmm. okay? But that's the amount of focus and clarity that you should have on your front sight. And so in order for you to have that, you know, that front sight needs to be as visible to you as the newest and latest big screen TV. It just needs to be there, demanding your attention. I have uh, never heard it put that way. I've never heard it put so well about the capability of the human eye versus your front sight. I've been very open with everybody about my struggle with target panic and a flinch. And one of the things that really, really helped me was learning to focus on my, either if I'm shooting an optics gun or an open sight gun, focus on that reticle or that front sight to the exclusion of everything else and track it through the shot. And to hear it put that way is so illuminating to me personally, absolutely your eye can follow that site and that should be your goal. The odd thing is it's right there in front of you. Right. <laughs> yeah. You know, it, and I tell guys, look, it's not that I'm a good shot. It's that I know why and I can explain it to you, mm-hmm. but it's up to you to find that focus. And the realization that it indeed is, you know, the forest for the trees kind of thing. Uh, is stark and then once that light comes on and you're able to see it but you know when you're trying to 
when you're trying to achieve that level of clarity and you know the sites aren't doing anything but showing you a bunch of glare mm-hmm. you know it makes it 10 times harder excellent excellent point that's so true that's so true Another thing I wanted to ask you about that I have seen um, recently that you, I don't actually, I don't know how recent it is, but your mirrored sites. So the mirror sites are a throwback and a salute to the King Gunworks of yeah, old. Yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, I sort of have improved the angle of the mirror and I make a facsimile, but I will not counterfeit you a King site. Mm-hmm. And I've seen my sites for sale on Gunbroker representative King sites. And they're not, they're clearly like Elmer Keith wanted things to be clearly, clearly distinct and not, and not a counterfeit. And so, uh, you know, I'm entrusted, you know, with the memory of those guys and I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna counterfeit it. It's very similar. Freedom Arms, you know, you'll, if you order a Freedom Arms front side for me, you're getting an actual Freedom Arms front side. Mm -hmm. The blanks come from Freedom Arms. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm doing the sites with Bob Baker's permission. Uh, If somebody wants something from the factory that they don't make, the factory sends them to me. And so, you know, I'm entrusted with the quality that they require, you know, to be representative of Freedom Arms. And that's what I try to do. Absolutely. That's, I'm, you know, that's, it's, it's funny that those kinds of things go on these days, but you're, you're carrying on a legacy with some improvement, which is kind of the whole idea behind honoring those that have come before us, right? In this sport. It's not just that, but it's the ones that come behind us. If I explain to you how it works, how is your grandson going to know? Yeah. Amen. That's absolutely true. But uh, just for curiosity's sake and to explain technically explain to me what a mirrored site is and the purpose of it so the mirror site in the old days there was a small piece of mirror in the front ramp and it illuminated the front side and sometimes they had an orange or white bead on there and sometimes they were just a blade uh what i'm doing is i'm using a stainless steel disc and i polish it to a just just as high finish as i can get it and, and it really, you can clearly see the reflection of the front side in that mirror. And, and you know, if anybody wants to see a picture, my telephone number is 361-960-3697. And I have a picture of the very first mirror that I polished sitting on my finger. And it's, it's amazing. That's really cool. Yeah, that, it, it's so good that I couldn't tell it wasn't a mirror there when, you I, go. when I saw it. So, is the, so the purpose is that the light hits the mirror and then reflects onto the front side, correct? So that it... I think so. Yeah. I don't know how practical it is, mm-hmm. but I know it's a, it's, it's a, you know, like the four and three quarter flat top guns. It really finishes those guns. Oh, that's cool. Um, it really uh, puts them in another era. And, uh, uh, you know, there's a certain amount of romance in it and cool factor. And that's just, just something that's fun to do. Yeah, absolutely. And that in and of itself makes it worth it. There you go. Yeah. So talk to me, as as we're talking, my brain's just going because this is fascinating to me. Talk to me about. I've heard a lot over the years about the the way that your the ambient light plays with your front sight and can change your point of impact with the same sight picture over, you know, depending on where the sun is, or if it's cloudy, if it's not. How does that impact someone shooting? And what to what degree do you? I mean, obviously, a more precise sight mitigates some of that, but. Depending on where the sun is, it can be significant. Mm-hmm. Any iron sight rifle shooter can tell you this. Mm-hmm. And it's like the wind. It cannot be taught. It must be learned. 
we can give you certain guidelines, you know, but I've been shooting, you know, at the plate that I've been shooting at all day. And by the time the sun's on the horizon, I'm missing 12 inches to the left because the site, what the sun does is it, it actually makes the front sight itself have a shadow. And so the front sight then looks thicker than what it is. And so you're adjusting towards the light. And so you're shooting away from the light. Fascinating. It's nuts. Yeah. It's wild. All the, all the little things you find out you should learn to become, you know, to level up as a shooter. Well, you have to get out there and do the shooting. You know, the, you know, the long range bars and the tiered style front sights, like the number five and things like that. Mm -hmm. I, I, I did all that. I spent the money to have bar front sights with the holdover bars and tier front sides and things like that. And what came to pass is that I simply shot the gun so much that I didn't need it. Mm -hmm. There just, is, there is no replacement for practice. Again, it takes a lot of ammunition, but you know, you could always sit at home and watch TV. <laughs> yeah. Uh, good point. Good point. Okay. So man, that's really good information about the sites. And obviously your sites are top king of the hill right now, for sure. What, but you've told me before when we talked, you know, when we talked about doing this interview, you said, you know, don't put, we, I called it lipstick on a pig. Don't put sights until you know that your gun can shoot. So tell me about what are some of the things that we're talking six guns, obviously. What are some of the things that people need to be checking on their six guns before they immediately start blaming their sights? So now we're going to start getting down to the meat of this whole interview. Okay, good. Great. So here it is. The guy has a brand new revolver. And he wants to improve it. So he wants to do the base pin thing and the free spin paw. And, of course, sights are on the menu. And he calls me up. And I say to him, have you shot your gun? And more often than not, they'll say no. And so what I explain to him is that you need to be sure that the, the gun is dimensionally uh, what you need it to be. You start spending a bunch of money on parts and pieces that you might not need. And so... When you look at problems that people have with the revolver, usually they're dimensional issues, whereas the gun is giving them leading. Uh, and leading, as you know, is friction that's created in the barrel. And, you know, your accuracy starts going down south pretty quick. Mm -hmm. And it's not that there's not reams of advice on the Internet. <laughs> it's, it's that the information that's being given to the prospective shooter is not in the order that it should be mm. because there is a linear path to correcting the revolver. Okay. And when you tell me you're ready, I'm going to start up and go through it. Yeah, please. Uh, so let me just clarify. You're saying probably the biggest problem is letting. Yes. In these single actions. Right. Yeah. Go, f go through it. What is the, what is the process for checking and then correcting an accurate revolver? Let me make this point. If you're not getting leading because you're shooting powder-coated bullets uh -huh. or bullets or jacketed bullets, yeah. the thing to understand about those projectiles is that they will mask dimensional deficiencies in the revolver. Oh, okay. There's no lead present to give you leading. That doesn't mean that the revolver is what it should be dimensionally. Understood. Okay, so walk me through. What are the, what's the progression of checks that needs to be done to make sure that your revolver is uh, dimensionally correct? If I got a new revolver... The first thing that I would do is pull a cylinder out of it and measure the throats, okay? And you can't do it with calipers. Just get calipers out of your head. They're plus or minus a thou, and a thou will drive you crazy with, 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 with the dimensions that we need to be. Mm -hmm. The calipers have, you know, squared surfaces, and you're trying to measure a radius. 
The easiest thing to use is a component jacketed bullet like an XPT, uh, XTP or gold dot or something like that. It's either going to slip through your throats or not. If it does not, then the throats are undersized and they must be corrected before you can make any ground. Mm -hmm. Okay. I do a lot of precision cylinder throat correction. The manner in which I do it, I stand them straight up and down in my mill. I locate the XY axes to zero, 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 five. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's the north and south, east and west point. That's the absolute center of your cylinder throat. And then I push a correct reamer down that hole. And what you'll often see afterwards is that the hole was oval or hourglassed or blunderbust or something along those lines. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you, if you went in there with a hone, the hone is going to follow what's already there. You don't want to do that in my opinion. Mm. I want to make the hole as round as I can without going a size up. The next thing we want to do is we want to make sure that we're shooting the right size bullet. Again, the dive calipers are plus or minus a thou, you know, I really urge you guys by the time you want to be accurate, you need to get a one inch micrometer. They're not that expensive. They're on eBay. Uh, it gives you precisely well within a thou of what diameter your bullets are. It'll also tell you if they're round. So having done that, what you want to do is shoot the right size bullet and the right size cylinder throat. You're going to shoot three or four cylinders. Okay. And then you're simply going to look at the muzzle. Again, we are talking about conventionally cast and lubricated bullets. And, and what you're looking for at the muzzle is the presence of lubricant, usually in the form of a star. We often call it the lube star or star of lubricant. If the lubricant on the muzzle is present, that's a good sign that you have favorable dimensions for that revolver. Because what that is telling you then is that the bullet grease is correctly forming a liquid gasket between the bullet lead and the barrel steel and escorting that bullet out of the muzzle. If throats are too big, then you need to shoot a bigger bullet because the gas will pass that bullet, you know, before it ever gets in the barrel and it just blows the lubricant out of there. And now you're shooting a dry bullet. You're not getting any. Okay. So if you don't, if you don't have that star of muzzle uh, lubricant on the muzzle, you know, you, and even if you do, you want to pull the base pin and look in your barrel, that barrel when properly done, should look like a, a freshly waxed dance floor. You see a bunch of stuff going on in there, you may need to do a little bit of fire lap. But at that point, and only at that point, without the presence of a loop star or the muzzle, or you have some leading, if we've already corrected the cylinder throats and we know we're shooting the right size bullet and we're still having a problem, then we have identified that the barrel is the problem. That's when you slug the barrel. All that makes sense? Yeah, absolutely. Yes, sir. So at some point, we need to put my phone number down because I offer free of charge. I will measure your cylinder throats for you. I will check your bullets for exact size and hardness and send it all back to you for the price of postage. Yes, absolutely. I'll put all your contact, your phone number in the show notes for sure. That's an open offer to any U.S. citizen. That's great. Let me ask you real quick. So what do you recommend as the correct size throat or the difference between the throat and the bullet? Well, what caliber are we talking about? Yeah, so that's a good question. What versus, you know, like if you're shooting something small, like a 3220 or something like that, and you're shooting something bigger, like a 45 Colt, where do you like to be as far as how much tolerance you have bullet versus throat? So a lot of times I'll shoot a bullet that's a press fit. In other words, it goes mostly in, and then I got to give it a little press in there. There's nothing wrong with that. 
This is not a combat gun. We're not running a race. We're trying to kill some sort of animal or hit the target in the center. Mm -hmm. And by doing that, I know that I'm getting a seal. I'm shooting a bullet that's a half a thou greater than what is my throat. Gotcha. Does that make sense? Yes, sir. Absolutely. So you want a half a thousandth. You can be a half thou grazer. You can be the same exact size or you can be a half thou under. That's fine. Okay. Uh, and as a matter of fact, there's a whole series of bullets that are Bob Kell designs. They're done by Miha Previk, and they're generally called the MP molds, the Miha designs. Mm -hmm. and, and the ones that are designated with the 640 suffix, all of those bullets forward of the crimp groove are slightly under diameter. Mm -hmm. So that means that you can shoot a full diameter bullet, and it's inside of your case, but you don't have to press fit it because the front of the bullet forward of the crimp groove isn't going isn't to uh, uh, bind in your throat. When it exits that case, okay, it's going to give you a seal. That is pretty slick, and we're talking uh, we're talking diameter, right? So at at most, you know, it's uh, you said a half thousandth bigger or a half thousandth smaller. So at most, it's a quarter thousandth on each side, right? That's that would be ideal for yeah, me. I have sure. who is an optical surgeon, mm -hmm. and he's got all this stuff to measure. And his throats are four five zero five, and he's shooting a four five zero bullet and getting incredible results. Gotcha. And so, so again, obviously, we're talking about forty five caliber, and forty five caliber can be all over the map. So, if say, uh, let's talk about let's let me give you a different example. My GP one hundred ten millimeter. Mm -hmm. The throats on that gun are four oh three, four oh three. Hmm. So if I load a 403 bullet in a case and try to put it in there, it's not going to chamber. Right. Neither will a 402. Why? Because the diameter of the bullet plus the case wall thickness is greater than the chamber wall. So then I have to shoot a 401 bullet just to get it in the damn gun. Yeah. And that's not going to work with conventionally cast and lubricated. So the shooter should then just simply shoot a powder coated or a plated bullet. So then when you're setting up throats, do you like for a gun to be dedicated towards cast or jacketed bullets or do you set them up differently no um generally you know after you've shot enough conventionally cast and lubricated bullets to know that your gun is dimensionally you know favorable you can shoot whatever kind of bullet you want now mm -hmm. having said all that you know just addressing the the aside from addressing the cylinder throats and the and the size of the bullet diameter i have guys they'll call me up and say well I have, my bullet's 15 bhn how fast can i make it go mm -hmm. well that depends on what your barrel is going to tolerate you see what i'm saying yes absolutely. some barrels are smoother than others right yeah absolutely so, you know a little bit of fire lapping helps a whole lot in a lot of cases would you say that this problem with the incorrect throat size is the number one issue that you face with factory guns what I'm saying is the place to start. Yeah. Okay. Understood. Gotcha. It's the place to start. Gotcha. Because you know you can correct all those things and have bad alignment. You know, I heard some guy said, you know, the bullet's like a, a wad of bubble gum. You slap it hard enough in the behind, it's going to slug up to where you need it to be, and that's just not the case. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's just demonstrating a clear misunderstanding of what's going on. It's not a mini ball. So what? Okay. So we've if we've corrected the throats, we know that the throats are good. What's next? Uh, again. You want to shoot at least three or four cylinders of conventionally cast and lubricated bullets, and then you're simply going to look at the loops, at the muzzle for the presence of the loop star. Okay. And if it's not there, then we need to do other things. 
and you should give me a shout and I'll help you with it. That's good. Okay. How much do you find that you have to redo barrel crowns? Very rarely. Usually the only reason I'm going to do a barrel crown is because I'm shortening the barrel. You know, the only, the other time that I'll do a barrel crown is when I'm putting it on a new barrel. What about a choked bore at the frame? Again, that's best solved by fire lapping or replacing the barrel. Some of these guns will fire lap right out and they'll behave like trained show ponies and some of the ponies and some of these guns, you just have to fight. Oh boy. I used to, when I was a gunsmith, I used to say guns have souls. You could find one gun that had a serial number right consecutive to another one, and there would be something different about it that just would cause it to give you a headache. You know, and and from from you know you're talking about how I enlightened you. That's 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 simply a fact, sir. On the on the what the barrel tolerates kind of thing. Mm -hmm. I have a mountain gun in 45 ACP. It's a really hard to find mountain uh, gun, and they're very expensive. And yeah. and this thing, this thing, the first six shots out of the gun went into one ragged hole. And I went to look at the lube scar, and there wasn't one. And I looked in the barrel, and it was starting to lead. And that gun has given me leading spits the whole time I've owned it. And I've just gotten into a, a – it's like when I was a cop, and you got into a fight with some guy in a bad alley. And you, just, you just simply couldn't afford to lose it. And, and you know, just me and this gun are having it out. And uh, I have it smooth now to where, believe it or not, It'll shoot fine conventionally cast and lubricated bullets, but it still won't shoot powder-coated bullets. Hmm. Don't ask me why, but I'm down to fire lapping that gun 10 rounds at a time until I get it. And I'm going to get it. I, I believe you. <laughs> That's true. That is not a gun that you could afford to give the fight up. What, uh, what's your recommended method to remove leading, or is it just elbow grease? No. That's so simple. So you know those copper pot scrubbers they sell at at uh, the dollar store absolutely yeah buy yourself some of those and hide them in your shooting stuff because if your wife catches you with them <laughs> you may have a different job description around the house <laughs> so so all you're going to do is lay that thing out on your bench and cut you know with your scissors cut like a square out of it mm -hmm. and then you just wrap it around a worn bristle brush mm -hmm. and that thing will remove lead out of your barrel in just a couple of strokes and seconds Another issue guys have is they're shooting undersized bullets and oversized throats. And so carbon starts to build up in your, in your, in your cylinder throats. Mm -hmm. and it's really hard to see. You have to set the, I have to set the cylinder down on a ball light bulb so I can see. And it's a white opaque eggshell looking kind of thing in there. And man, but if you put that same chore boy equipped brush into your cordless and put a little solvent on there, it'll cut it right out. Man, that's worth the price of admission right there. That's a good tip for sure. I've been using that for the longest time. It's something I learned from Beryl Smith, mm -hmm. and uh, it just works great. Do you have a recommended method for fire lapping? I do. I wrote an article about it in 2010, and I probably spent a little bit too much time telling people who I was in the system world at the onset, but, you know, trying to establish my bona fides because, you know, I'm known for a while. Mm -hmm. And so I, I have discovered a better method to actually make the ammunition. And as I have an opportunity, I'll share that. Uh, but we're making, we're making strides. That's good to know. So you, you recommend, is this something that the average shooter can do themselves? Yep. Okay. If he's a hand loader, he can hand load fire that thing. Gotcha. All you're doing is you're putting some, some 320 grit valve compound 
into the grease grooves of a bullet and you're feeding it into the case like you normally would and you're shooting it like you normally would. Uh, it's a very underpowered round because you don't want it coming out of there at high velocity. You want it just to, just to clear the muzzle. And so since that's the case, to be sure that you don't stick one of your bullets in the muzzle, because it's easy to do, yeah. okay? There's a difference between how much friction a four-inch barrel makes compared to a 10-inch, you understand? Yeah, absolutely. And so you want to shoot a paper target and make sure you get that thwap and hear a hole, see a hole uh, that that bullet did clear. But it, a lot of times, fire lapping 15 rounds, now that gun's just, it's just a tag driver. And it's unfortunate because, you know, I do cylinder throats for guys, and then they call me back up, and a lot of these are older men. Mm-hmm. Me back up, and I just shot a two inch group at 50 yards. I wasn't just but leaning up against a barn. You know, the tragedy there is that guy's been that good of a shot his whole life and didn't know it. That's and for what? Is it too stubborn to take a jacketed component bullet and see what fits in your throats? Yeah, or is there a lack of knowledge out there? I think so. I think that's just that there's the, the knowledge is out there, it's just not in a linear form so that people can say, okay, this is step A, this is step B, this is step C. Right. You know, these, these guys are everything from you're using the wrong bullet lube to, you know, uh, just all sorts of, you know, you need to slug your bore and uh, just all sorts of things. And, and it's just not that complicated. Yeah, that's true. It's not complicated, but like you, you said earlier, there's no, there's no lack of information about it on the internet. No, there's not. Like <laughs> I said, though, it's often not in the right order. Yeah. These people are often not like you and I, a trained gunsmith. You know, I actually did go to gunsmith school. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I have a better understanding, I think, of it than a lot of people. And so, you know, I don't want to make it harder for you. I want to make it better for you if yeah. I can. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And that's one of the main reasons you have such a good reputation. So let me ask this uh, to start wrapping up here. We are always looking for ways to introduce new shooters to our awesome sport and trying to find ways to, you know, entice them and say, you got to give this a try in your mind. Where does somebody need to start if they're interested in getting into six guns? Oh, I would start with the 22, just like anything else. Mm-hmm. You know, you can, you know, you take a kid and you, and you give him something that's too big for him to shoot and it bites him, you know, he's, he's going to be a flincher for years after that. And so you don't, you know, you just want to, you want to sort of take a, you know, there's a lot of difference. Are we training an 11 year old girl? Or are we training a lumberjack? I mean, you, you, you sort of have to, you have to tailor it to what the student needs. I think. That's funny. Uh, Ken Kelly told me a story. I think he said it on the podcast that his, he was going to shoot silhouette back in the early eighties and his dad, the only ammunition his dad had at the time to give him was some really hot Corbon stuff. And he said it was so hot that he shot the dirt for most of the competitions and it took him for a long time to get over his flinch. It does. And it, it's something that you want to avoid if you can. And that goes back to the very fundamental uh, habit of putting a spent cartridge case into each chamber that you shoot. I don't care how good of a shot you are. You need to be checking on what you're doing. You need to be honest with yourself. Yeah. Nothing shows your, nothing makes you honest like that exercise as well. Oh no. Yeah. Okay. Last question. So from what you can tell me, whatever you can share, what have you got on the horizon? What are some things you're working on? What's the future of the firm and Garza uh, shooters resources? So up to this point, we've largely addressed the different front sites that we could, we could uh, use. 
Uh, a lot of my front sights are interchangeable. That is, they, they, they attach with a screw, and so they're easy to take off and interchange and modify and do things like that down the road. But we're fixing the, we're fixing to introduce a rear sight that I think is going to be something that's easy to uh, incorporate into your battery. We're going to try to make this thing not cost a great deal of money and yet do away with the glare that's present in the Ruger rear sight. Uh, yeah. I think it's important for guys to understand that for me to be successful at my job, I need to be sure that I'm making them successful. Amen. That is awesome. Furman, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. You are heck of a knowledgeable guy and very good at sharing, you know, kind of training and teaching people. I recommend anybody out there who's interested in anything you said, give you a, a shout. Can you tell me how they can find you real quick again? Don't mess with my website. It's so far out of date and we don't have time to update it. Just call me directly. 361-960-3697. I want to, I want to introduce you myself to you. Thank you personally and find out where you are on your six gun journey and see if I can't hurry you. Yeah, absolutely. And that again is a rare commodity these days that we're grateful for. Furman, thanks again so much for doing this with me. And uh, I know we're going to be doing it again and I hope you have a good one. Ryan, thank you so much for bringing the handgun hunters international back. I think it left a big hole in the community. Uh, I think what you're doing is, is laying the foundation for a very strong future for all of us. Thank you so much for those kind words. And I, and I hope you're right. We're working towards it for sure. So we can secure that future. Very good. I'll let you have the rest of your afternoon off now. All right. Another good one in the books. Furman Garza is just somebody I've added to the list of awesome people in our community. And I tell you, the more people I meet, the more people I talk with, the more I come to realize how selfless this community is. We all love to hunt and we love our handguns and we love what we do. We love having fun. We love making jokes, but we also just love sharing our knowledge, sharing our experience and our stories with each other. Furman Garza is no exception to that. And that's one of the reasons that I'm such a proponent of the handgun hunting and the handgunning community in general, because this with very few exceptions, is what you'll find in our community. I mean, you heard it in his voice. He just wants to talk to you. If you're a six-gunner, if you have a revolver that you need help with, or you're just wanting to increase your knowledge or discuss something with him, he's available. And it's rare to find professionals these days that make themselves that available. And I can't tell you how much I appreciate him for doing it. Okay, we got a lot more good podcasts coming up, so I hope you'll stick around for those. But in the meantime, I really appreciate you listening to this episode of The Short Gun Sportsman. Don't forget to give us a five-star rating and a good review, and we'll see you on the next one. Thank you. This podcast is produced by Handgun Hunters International. HHI is the only organization dedicated solely to supporting and growing the sport of handgun hunting. Membership gets you access to our great, well-moderated forum where friendly handgun hunters of all experience levels share stories and information from folks that have actual experience in our sport. We also host giveaways to our members of guns, gear, and ammo every month, and each prize is worth several times what membership costs. In addition to this podcast, we publish a free digital magazine, The Six Gunner, which is written exclusively by HHI members. If you are a handgun hunter or support handgun hunting in any way, you need to be a member of HHI. Join today at handgunhuntersinternational.com.
Again, if you have any questions on how to get started in handgun hunting, please reach out to me at ryan at handgunhuntersinternational.com. If you think we deserve it, please leave us a five-star review and don't forget to follow Handgun Hunters International on social media at handgunhuntersint. God bless and good hunting. Good hunting.